0: So this morning, why don't you go and turn your Bibles to Isaiah 7. If you attend here regularly, you know that we've been going through loose gospel verse by verse, but this is the sermon that I prepared for Christmas Sunday, and I think it has uh, application any Sunday of the year, and so I'd like to go ahead and deliver that sermon that I was planning for Christmas, and I hope it blesses you as much as it blessed me studying it. And go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read verses 1 through 14 says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, notice this, these two kings came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they could not mount an attack against it. Verse 2 When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, or that these two kings are working together, the heart of Ahaz, the king of Judah, and the heart of his people, or all the Jews, shook. As the trees of the forest shake before the wind is terrified at this attack. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, referring to the two kings who were attacking, the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and let us set up this gentleman, Tabeel, as king on the throne of Judah in Ahaz's place in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. Verse 8, for the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is resin. and within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people." and the head of Ephraim is Samaria the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. if you are not firm in faith you will not be firm at all again the Lord spoke to Ahaz ask a sign of the Lord your God let it be as deep imagine if God asked this of you let it be as deep as Sheol as high as heaven whatever sign you want but Ahaz said I will not ask for a sign and I will not put the Lord to the test and he said, Here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. You may be seated. Father, I'm sure that at least the end of these verses, verse 14, familiar to uh, everyone, and, but perhaps people don't know the background to it and these there's an incredible story here that accompanies this familiar prophecy about your son's birth and i pray that we would recognize what took place in ahaz's day that looked forward to so dramatically the birth of christ i pray for uh, understanding i think there are a little more technical things this morning and to and to be able to Uh, follow what transpires in these verses offers a much deeper and i would say sweeter understanding than for us lord and so give people understanding give me clarity of speech as i teach this morning bring to mind the things i should say help me to rightly divide your word as i i understand that there's some controversy about what some of these verses mean but just, just use me as your vessel to preach the truth to your people and we pray these things in christ's name amen 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 so we're going to learn about one of the most amazing and familiar prophecies associated with uh Christ's birth you can see it there in verse 14. just let you know ahead of time what we're going to do is dig into the background to this because most people probably only recognize verse 14 from Matthew's Gospel and and don't have much familiarity with it associated with the context in Isaiah 7 here And this background is important because without it, I don't think that we can truly appreciate this prophecy, which is what I believe God desires through it, that we would understand the background so we can have a greater appreciation for a manual. There are three names in this account. We read them as I went through the verses, and I know it can be a little confusing to keep them all straight. And so I put the the three names on the top of your uh, bulletin above the lessons. So hopefully you have a bulletin with you. In fact, if you don't have a bullet, does anyone not have a bulletin just by a show of hands? Okay, Chris. We do me a favor. I know you're counting. Or Chris, we do me a favor and get bulletins to hand out to people. So go ahead and keep your hand up, and then Chris will bring a bulletin around to you. So on the top of the bulletin there, there is these three names. Take a look with me, please. There's Ahaz, and he is the king of Judah, and he worshipped other gods. He he was such an evil man that he even sacrificed his son to the god Moloch, and so you can't get much worse than that. That is the king of God's people in Isaiah 7. Isaiah, one commentator said about Ahaz that he was a cowardly, superstitious, and hypocritical ruler, one of the worst kings that Judah ever had. There's Rezin; He's the king of Syria, and he's also bad. And there is Pekah. He's the king of Israel, which is also called Ephraim throughout this account after the largest tribe just like the southern kingdom of judah is called judah after the larger of the two tribes judah and benjamin and so sometimes the northern kingdom of israel is called ephraim you see that throughout this account and pika is the king of the northern kingdom pika and um, resin or the king of syria and the king of israel formed this alliance to attack the southern kingdom of judah or to attack ahaz so what you need to keep straight is that pika and Rezin came together formed an alliance so that they could attack the southern kingdom of judah which is being ruled by that evil king ahaz and it's against that backdrop that this incredible prophecy is delivered look at me at verse one it says in the days of ahaz the son of jotham the son of uzziah the king of judah Rezin the king of syria and Pekah the son of remaliah the king of israel they came up to jerusalem the capital of judah to wage war against it but they could not yet mount an attack against it and this is basically a summary verse of what took place and the following verses are going to explain why these two kings were not able to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah verse two when the house of David which is just another way to refer to Ahaz because he's a descendant of David and he sits on the throne uh, David's throne so he says when the house of David was told Or when judah was told or ahaz was told syria is in league with ephraim another way to refer to israel the heart of ahaz and the heart of his people which would be the jews shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind and so when the combined forces of the syrians and the israelites came against ahaz and the jews how did ahaz and the jews feel We're going to need to do a little better than that this morning, okay? (laughs) How did Ahaz and the Jews feel? Yeah, they were terrified, exactly. So God sends the prophet Ahaz, or excuse me, God sends the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz. And if I swap those names this morning, feel free to interrupt me and and let me know, because that is one of my weaknesses. So God sends the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz. Verse 3, the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washers field so God tells Isaiah to go meet King Ahaz with a message and he tells Isaiah to bring who with him does anyone's Bible see what Isaiah's son Shear Jashub's name means (laughs) a remnant shall remain or they there shall remain a remnant can anyone see why that would be significant for sheer jasha to go with isaiah and how this son is going to serve as an object lesson or let me say it like this this son communicates a message just by his presence names had considerable significance in the old testament and so the reason that isaiah was to bring his son wasn't for discipleship hour or something like that it was because his son's presence communicated this message to isaiah or to Ahaz that a remnant would remain which was something that Ahaz was afraid would not be the case that a remnant of Judah would not be would not remain because Syria and Esther were going to wipe them out completely also notice this detail the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field do you know why that's there because you're reading an accurate historical account you're reading about real people who did real things and went to real places and so sometimes when you see these details that could look a little superfluous to you or unnecessary it's important to remember these aren't these aren't this isn't fiction these are not fairy tales this is along with being the word of God and everything supernatural about it it is also an accurate history book recording what took place and when you see those details it's like wow this that you picture that he was told where to go he was told to meet ahaz at this location to bring his son it was the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field look what isaiah says to ahaz verse 7 be careful be quiet do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Resen in Syria and the son of Remaliah, which refers to Pika so when a true prophet shows up speaking for God what are you supposed to do be quiet yeah don't fear uh listen and not let your heart be faint it's the time to to keep your mouth shut and hear what God wants to say through his mouthpiece also even though this situation was terrifying to Ahaz God told Ahaz he didn't have to fear because when God looked at these two individuals even though they were terrifying to Ahaz and to the Jews how did God see them he saw them as what two smoldering stumps of firebrands is how it's rendered in the ESV and my suspicion is a smoldering stump consider what a smoldering stump does put off and doesn't put off it doesn't put off fire it does put off smoke now smoke isn't without without fire at least is not going to typically be deadly it's going to be very annoying it's going to get in your eyes it's going to make you cough might even make you choke a little bit but it's probably not going to kill you if there's a fire you have more to worry about and so what God is basically saying is that they're going to be annoying to you they're going to frustrate you but they're not going to be deadly and and also when you see something that's smoldering it tells you that it's about to go out so this is probably also God's way of letting him know that these two are about to meet their destruction look what God says Pekah and resin were planning to do verse 5 he says because Syria again referring to resin and Ephraim again referring to Israel and the son of Remaliah, again Pekah has devised evil against you. So these two kings have devised evil and they have said, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and let us set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. So the king of Syria and Israel, they want to come against Judah. They want to remove Ahaz from the throne of Judah and they want to put a king there named Tabeel that let's say they like or that they believe will be submissive to them now we talked about this in a recent sermon That in an ancient, in the ancient world when a king received the throne and he was not descended from the previous king what was customary or when that when there was a new king who was not of the house or dynasty of the previous king but was establishing a new line of descendants what was customary for that new king to do with the previous king's descendants or the previous king's house or dynasty execute all of them so that none of them pose a threat in the future and try to take the throne back to that house or dynasty that that individual is from and so you're reading this and it looks like it just says we just want to put Tibel on to be, to be along the throne and maybe in the back of your mind you kind of think well maybe something nice will happen to ahaz like he'll still get to serve in the royal court or they'll give him a good you know position as vice president or something it's nothing less than them saying, We are going to execute Ahaz and we are going to execute all of his descendants, which is really to say we're going to destroy what? Huh? The house of David, which is really to say we're going to destroy the messianic line. To say that we are going to remove Ahaz from the throne is to say that we are going to destroy his house, which is to say we're going to destroy the house of David, which is to say we're going to destroy the messianic line, which is to say we're going to make God a liar, which is to say we're going to stop God from being faithful to the covenant that he made with David, and even going back further, the covenant that he made with Abraham, or even going back further, the covenant he made with Adam about bringing a Messiah into the world that would crush the head of the serpent and and save people from their sins. Matthew 1.1. You don't have to turn there but it says this is the genealogy of jesus christ the son of david the son of abraham so when it's ta- it's talking about jesus's genealogy and if we jump down to verse 9 instead of reading all the names it says uzziah the father of jotham jotham the father of ahaz Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and then jump down again so you don't hear all the other names. Verse 16, you get to Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And so here's the point. If you remove Ahaz and all of his descendants, you cut the messianic line off and you prevent any of those descendants from coming into the world, which prevents the birth of Christ. So it looks like there's these two men that are uh, two wicked men that are doing what wicked men do attack other nations and try to gain more power for themselves but you need to understand you're seeing something satanic here you're seeing nothing less than the devil trying to destroy the messianic line and prevent the seed of the woman from coming into the world the seed of the woman who would do what to the devil crush his head or crush the head of the servant right from genesis three fifteen. And one reason I'm stressing that is because if you remember when I introduced the sermon or when I introduced you to Ahab, what did I say about him? Just an incredibly wicked man, one of the worst in the Old Testament, maybe second only to, in terms of the kings of Judah, Manasseh. He sacrificed his own son to the false god Moloch. You hear something like that and you have to wonder why God would go to these lengths to deliver such a man. You could almost think, why didn't God just what? Let him be killed. I mean, maybe peak and Rezin would be better kings than him. Well, God didn't deliver Ahaz for Ahaz. God did what he always does. He delivered Ahaz for God. God did what he did to bring himself glory. He did what he did to be faithful to the covenant that he made. He did what he did to ensure that his son would come into the world and be the propitiation for our sins. And so, like I have said to you many times when we're reading the Old Testament, this account is not about Ahaz. It's certainly not about Pekin. It's not about Rezin. It's like the other accounts in the Old Testament. It is primarily about Christ, the plan of redemption, and what God wanted to do to bring his son into the world and what the devil was trying to do in thwarting that it's that threat to the messianic line that provides the background for this sign that Emmanuel will be born or let me say it one other way and just listen to me carefully please it looks like resin and pika are going to prevent the Messiah from coming into the world because they are going to destroy the messianic line and it's against that backdrop that God provides the sign of emmanuel being born or god with us being born so right when it looks like the messiah will not come into the world god says emmanuel will be born god with us will be born look at these wonderful words that god shared with ahaz thus says the lord god it is not going to stand it shall not come to pass verse 8 for the head or capital of syria is damascus and the head or king or even capital of Damascus is resin and within 65 years Ephraim or again Israel is going to be shattered from being a people now if you know your Old Testament history you know what took place with the northern kingdom of Israel they had I believe it was 19 Kings all of them evil beginning with Jeroboam setting up the golden calves none of the Kings recovered from that and none of the people Listen to the godly prophets like hosea and isaiah that were sent to them and so when god finally had enough he sent the assyrians to attack the northern kingdom of is of israel and essentially wipe them out as a people because the land was resettled if you remember how assyria attacked israel it wasn't like babylon attacking the southern kingdom of judah and bringing them into exile as a people so that they could return as a people when assyria attacked israel they resettled the land they brought in these foreign people and then it was the intermarriage between the northern kingdom of Israel's people the Israelites with all of these Gentiles or foreigners who were brought in that created a new race or hybrid or mixed race of people known as the Samaritans that's what you see in Christ's day the Samaritans were half Israelite and half Assyrian, or half people that the Assyrians brought into the land to resettle it. And so, right here, when it says that it, within 65 years, the northern kingdom of Israel was going to come to an end, that's exactly what happened. That's why it says at the end of the verse, they will be shattered from being a people. And then it says, verse 9, the head or the capital of Ephraim is Samaria, the head. Or the king of samaria is the son of remaliah referring to pika and then notice this if you are not firm in faith you will not be firm at all now here's something important some of your bibles might make this point you might have a footnote or an aster an asterisk identifying a footnote associated with the word you in verse nine does anyone see this Telling you that the word you is what? Plural. Now, the word you can be used singularly or plurally. For example, if I said, I'm speaking to all of you, then the word is being used plurally. Where if I'm talking to one person and I say, look at you, then it's being used singly. I know this is a little bit of an English lesson, but it's important to <laughs> understand this. Because in verse 9, the point is this if the word you is plural, who is God talking to? let me say this then before the word you was plural who was God talking to Ahaz as soon as the word you becomes plural who is God talking to all of us everyone all of you every single one of us so God promises Ahaz victory but he says only if you remain what well guess who else he's saying that to he's saying that to me he's saying it to you he's saying it to every single person that will read their Bible and consider the truth of this for our lives we will only remain if we are firm in the faith if we are not firm in the faith we will not be firm at all and it is true for us there is no victory in the Christian life apart from faith Hebrews 11:6. it is impossible to please God without faith there is not anything that is not of faith is you, you couldn't even do something as moral or good as it looked if it wasn't done in faith then it is actually sin because it's not being done for god's honor no matter how righteous or, or just it would even look and so that's how much this speaks to us that everything we do must be done in faith we cannot stand at all without faith Where there's only defeat there's only failure And the point is this look at these verses and hear God speaking to you through them when the word you becomes plural. Now, God wants Ahaz in particular to be firm in his faith. So when we move from verse nine, it no longer is plural and now becomes singular. And the reason I'm stressing that is because if you think that God is still speaking plurally, then you would think that the offer that God makes to Ahaz in verse 10 is the same off, offer that God is making to all of you, which would be what? The offer to do what? Yeah, so God, doesn't, God is not telling all of us that we can ask for a sign. <laughs> Sorry about that. God is not telling us, hey, ask for a sign or miracle as high as the heavens or as deep as Sheol. God is not saying that to us. He's just saying it to Ahaz. Look at verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God, and that word for your there is singular, let it be deep as Sheol or let it be as high as heaven and you, we kind of can read these things sort of easily and not give them the attention that they deserve or consider the significance of it, but just for a moment, I mean, I might put this just one step below God's offer to Solomon, right? God says to Solomon, ask whatever you wish. Well, right here, he says something close to that to Ahaz. He says, ask for a sign or ask for a miracle. Let it be as deep as sheol let it be as high as heaven which means there's no restrictions on this there's nothing too big or too great for you to be able to request and you pro- some of your bibles probably also have another note if it noted that you was singular you probably have a note saying that your is or if you had a note saying you was plural you probably have a note saying that your has gone back to singular it's almost like the writers of scripture wanted us to understand that this is not being said to us like the previous verse was sadly look how ahaz responds and he tries to sound very spiritual so i'm going to try to make this real spiritual sounding when i read this oh i will not and i will not put the lord to the test now this doesn't look like it makes sense to us does it because who when asked for a sign wouldn't request one i mean wouldn't you love to be given this offer well why did god offer a has a sign it was to bolster his faith it was to convince him to believe that god would deliver him from pika and Rezin, or syria and israel or the enemies that had come against him now who wouldn't want a sign to believe or bolster their belief that God would deliver them. Do you know who? Someone who doesn't want to believe. And this brings us to lesson one. Some people don't want to believe. Ahaz was an unbelieving king. If you want greater background to this account, you read, I believe it's 2 Kings 16. And when you read second Kings sixteen, you see that when Ahaz was attacked, instead of turning to God for help, does anyone know where he turned? He turned to Assyria. He's being attacked, Ahaz is being attacked by Syria, but he turned to Assyria for help. And you can hear me say that, and you say, Hey Pastor God, didn't you just say a minute ago that Assyria was the nation that came and attacked the northern kingdom of Israel? Yes. The same nation, ironically, and there's an incredible lesson here in this for us, that Ahaz turned to for help, later turned on him and persecuted him. And it's an incredible picture of the way that people will suffer on this side of heaven and instead of turning to God for help, turn to that bottle or that drug or that person or that, and you fill in the blank with whatever it is, and then that ends up coming back to afflict them a few weeks ago we were in Sunday School and I thought that Jameson made this great point about the reasons that young people go off to college and say that they are no longer Christians and we tend to think and I'm sure there are examples of this being the case that they went off to college and they heard some professor or took some course or were there was something academic that transpired or intellectually some argument that convinced them to no longer believe Uh, and so when you talk to them about it they defend their apostasy by saying well you know christianity doesn't make sense for these reasons and i'm no longer a believer because of this this and this does anyone remember what jameson said is the reason that many young people will go off to college or leave the home and then say that they are no longer christians sin they want to drink they want to fornicate they want to watch things they shouldn't watch they want to listen to things that they shouldn't listen to and if they claim to be Christians then what they can't the hypocrisy the inconsistency is too much and so to justify or legitimize their lifestyle their decisions they must say what they're not going to say I'm no longer a Christian they're going to say I can't believe in Christianity it's just not true because they want to be able to do these sinful things in other words it's not that they no longer believe I would say they were never believers in the first place but it's that they don't want to believe because belief produces actions all of our actions all of our choices are products of our beliefs we do what we do because of the things that we believe why do you make the choices that you make in your life because of what you believe. You can even think on the other side of the spectrum, why would people get into a plane and fly it into a building and kill themselves and kill other people? It's not like they woke up one day and said, and I'm not making a joke, you know, that that just sounds like so much fun. I would love to get in a plane and kill myself and kill all these other people. What would be more exciting than that? It was what that caused them to do that, their beliefs, their convictions. Our actions, decisions, choices are born out of our beliefs and convictions and people don't want to believe that what they're doing is wrong because then they would have to stop doing it so they'll deny the belief they'll deny the conviction they'll push that away so that they can engage in the sin that they want to engage in now I mention all that because in Ahaz's case if he receives this sign that God will deliver him then what he's forced to do what act on that belief If he accepts this sign, then he's going to have to turn away from trusting, who did I say earlier, turn away from trusting Assyria and put his trust in God. And you can read 2 Kings 16. Go home and read it tonight as a family. You'll enjoy the account. You'll see what happens. Ahaz did not want to believe. He did not want to trust God. He wanted to trust the Assyrians. Why? Why? why would why would someone want to trust the Assyrians instead of trusting God sight Hebrews 11 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen what can you do with an Assyrian army chariots horsemen soldiers that you can't do with God see them it's much easier for an unspiritual person or it's even challenging for a spiritual person to believe at times or have faith at times and God says you're not going to be firm if you don't have faith but even after that warning Ahaz did not want to believe he did not want to have faith he wanted to continue to trust in the Assyrians and that excuse would have been removed if he asked for a sign and so he but what what can he not say he can't be unspiritual in this moment and so what does he say far be it from me to test God I would never do that and honestly maybe if you're unfamiliar with this account didn't Ahaz sound kind of spiritual when he said no I will not test God in fact he sounds pretty much like who when he said that the son of God (laughs) when the son of God said the same thing when he was being tempted by the devil right what did Jesus say you shall not put the Lord your God to the test and so ahaz i mean he's like he almost looks like he's prefiguring christ or something and that's not what's happening he was an unspiritual man who wanted to remain in his unbelief so he could continue to lean on the assyrians instead of god himself it's fake spirituality and the reason i'm stressing this is so that you can understand why he ends up rebuked right here instead of being commended verse 13. he this is isaiah isaiah says to him angrily hear then O house of David referring to Ahaz is it too little for you to weary men that you must also weary my God how did Ahaz weary men who are the men and women and people that he wearied the entire nation he ruled over because he was such a terrible king and so Isaiah says to him it's bad enough you've got to be a terrible king to your people and and weary them or wear them out now you've also got to wear out my God and so Isaiah wasn't having it he was frustrated with this wicked man and so what's kind of ironic is Ahaz says no I don't want to test God I do not want to I wouldn't want to weary him but because God told him to ask for a sign and not asking for a sign what was Ahaz doing wearying god or testing him or testing god's patience because of his disobedience anytime we disobey just like with our children just like our children test our patience or weary us ahaz or we weary god or test his patience when we disobey him which is what ahaz is doing here and here's something interesting now if you've kind of followed the see the point we've reached it's a dilemma you can see the dilemma that god finds himself in because he is determined to deliver Ahaz for the reason that I mentioned earlier that he wants to he's going to continue the messianic line so that his son comes into the world so here's what God can't do God can't just say you know forget you Ahaz I'm so sick of you and your wickedness and and everything you do I'm done with you I'm just gonna let you be wiped out because then God's son when the messianic line would be destroyed but at the same time you say well what's God going to do because he's talking to this wicked man that won't ask for a sign and so God says I'm just going to give you a sign anyway I am going to deliver you anyway so that I can be faithful look at verse 14. therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign give you a sign anyway despite your unbelief behold the Virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And she'll call his name emmanuel which means god with us and i want you to notice two things about verse 14. in verse 14 the word you has now gone back to what it has now gone back to the plural which means this verse or this prophecy is for all of you or all of us and not just ahaz and then the second thing i want you to notice is the word behold in the middle of the verse so all of god's word is important significant but there are those times kind of like when jesus says verily verily right when what, what do you do hopefully you kind of perk up and you recognize okay i need to give special attention to this right when you see the word behold in the middle of this verse this is like christ saying verily verily or truly truly make sure you you pay attention and don't miss this and so he says behold the Virgin is going to conceive bear a son and call his name Emmanuel which means God with us Now I want to introduce you to something a principle that prophecy can have a near partial fulfillment and a future greater or complete fulfillment and you're familiar with one of these examples I believe just if I said to you if I said who is the son of David that's going to sit on David's throne that's going to have great wisdom that's going to be famous powerful worshiped adored the world over people of the earth are going to flock to him give him gifts who do you say or who's the son of David you could say you have the near fulfillment the near partial fulfillment in Solomon you have the future greater complete fulfillment in Christ himself at his second coming at Christ's second coming there will be nobody in the entire Old Testament that Christ resembles more than Solomon the lesser son of David well right here there's a near emmanuel or god with us and there's a future greater emmanuel god with us and this brings us to lesson two jesus is the true and greater emmanuel in that he part one was born of a virgin so first let's talk about this near partial fulfillment in isaiah's day and then we'll talk about the future greater fulfillment that's found in christ and i want you to uh, listen carefully behold okay (laughs) in Isaiah's day there was a young girl who was a virgin she is unmarried Uh, she had not had a relationship with a man although she is not named in this account my suspicion is Ahaz would have known her perhaps she would have been part of the royal court or she would have been someone near him that he would have seen on a somewhat regular basis one commentator wrote most commentators think that this was immediately fulfilled this prophecy when a young woman in the royal household shortly married conceived a son and then unknowingly or let's say coincidentally named him Emmanuel so there would be this young girl who was a virgin she would get married cease being a virgin there's nothing supernatural or miraculous about this birth except that God predicted it have a relationship with a man Have a son and then she would name this son emmanuel and then there would be one day that ahaz would see this child knowing that he came from this girl who sometime earlier probably unknowing unknown to him had you know had been a virgin then had gotten married has this child and he sees this child and this child's name is emmanuel and when he sees this child with that name the birth of this child serves as a son or excuse me the birth of this child serves as a sign to Ahaz that God is going to do what he said which is what deliver Ahaz from these enemies at some time in the future so that's the near partial fulfillment what's the true and greater fulfillment that in Joseph and Mary's day there would be a woman who would remain a virgin who would give birth to a son, and he would be Emmanuel, and that would be the supernatural, miraculous birth. The next part of lesson two, Jesus is the true and greater Emmanuel, and that he part two is literally God with us. Listen to Isaiah seven fourteen, quoted in Matthew one twenty-one, which is where most of you probably know it. Mary will bear a son, and listen to this, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's confusing. When you've got a verse that says you're going to name him what? Jesus, and then two verses later it says you're going to call him Emmanuel and that's a legitimate question we can have is his name Jesus or is his name Emmanuel is he Jesus or is he Emmanuel I mean what's going on here and the answer is yes we already know his name is Jesus so that just makes us wonder why his name wasn't Emmanuel do me a favor briefly turn to the right to Isaiah 9 verse 6 another famous prophecy associated with Jesus birth I think I preached on these verses for Christmas a few years ago verse six for unto us a child is born to us a son is given the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor Mighty God Everlasting Father Prince of Peace and now you're super confused because now how many names does the Son of God have (laughs) I mean he's jesus he's emmanuel he's wonderful counselor he's mighty god he's everlasting father and he's prince of peace we're at six names at this point another example jeremiah 23 6 in his days judah will be saved and israel will dwell securely and then referring to jesus this is the name by which he will be called the lord is our righteousness so now jesus is called the lord is our righteousness so now we're adding another name to the list and even when gabriel came and visited mary in luke 1 gabriel said jesus will jesus will be great and he will be called the son of the most high we're getting to like 10 names for jesus and we could look at a lot of other uh, places in the old testament that reveal other names for him as well and so it kind of begs the question what do we call him what is his name why does he have all these think of them more as titles that he fulfilled because they describe him it's like saying he shall be called doctor or lawyer or teacher they're not people's names but they are fitting titles if they describe who that person is why was Jesus called Emmanuel why was he called Emmanuel because he was literally physically bodily God with us you hear people go through a trial and they'll say I was really struggling I was really suffering but I felt like God was with me but we know they don't mean that literally right they mean it spiritually and that's a wonderful way to mean it but they don't mean that God incarnate bodily physically literally was there with them but with Jesus God was literally bodily physically with us with people and I'll ask you to think about something just as Isaiah's child Shir Jashub remember earlier I told you Isaiah was to bring his son because that son Shir Jashub served as a message he communicated something his very presence did so too did the child Emmanuel in Ahaz's day communicate a message when Ahaz saw this child Emmanuel, he didn't literally say, Wow, that's God with us, physically, bodily incarnate. But he did say, What? This is encouraging. God is with us, He is going to deliver us. The child would have been a great encouragement to the Jews who were terrified by these enemies. Every time they saw that child Emmanuel, it would have been a reminder to them of God being with them through this trial. But the child wasn't truly God with them, but Jesus literally, physically was God with them. In Ahaz's day, people could look at the child and say, oh, you know, that's pretty cute. There's a child there. His parents decided, his mother decided to name him Emmanuel. Oh, he he is God with us, figuratively. It reminds us on a daily basis every time we see him that God is with us. When people looked at Jesus, what did they say? This is God with us literally physically bodily incarnate God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth to be with us born as a baby in a manger John 1 14, the word became flesh dwelt among us we've seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth In the next part of lesson two Jesus is the true and greater Emmanuel and that he part three gives us victory over the greatest enemy gives us victory over the greatest enemy so the child in Isaiah or Ahaz's day represented something to Ahaz and to the people or the child was this is why the child was called a what the child was a sign well what was the child a sign of the child was a sign of God's deliverance the child was a sign of god delivering his people from these enemies Rezin and Pekah. so think of it like this the birth of this child emmanuel in ahaz's day served as a sign of the victory that god would give the people over the enemies they faced can you see where i'm going with this and why that child would prefigure or foreshadow or serve in such a great way of the true and greater emmanuel's birth and the victory that that birth would serve as a sign for us over the greater enemy that we face let me show you something look at the second half of isaiah 7 2. isaiah 7 2. the heart of ahaz and his people they shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind, so, so the Jews and Ahaz looked at this enemy or these enemies they faced, and they were terrified. Do you know who else looks at an enemy, and is terrified? We do. Hebrews two fifteen. Jesus delivers all those who through fear of death we're subject to lifelong slavery this does not say that we're slaves of death although that's true in the sense that everyone who's not a believer is a slave of death this is saying our fear of death is so great it makes us lifelong slaves even before people die they are already slaves of death because they're so Terrified of it, and it says that Jesus came to deliver us from that. And so, Jesus's birth serves as a sign of the victory God has given us over our enemy in an even greater way than that child in Ahaz's day served as a victory over the enemy that they faced. Because, here's let me ask you this, let me just make this do you want would you want victory over pica and resin? people who when given victory over pika and resin ended up what in the future anyway every single person who was delivered from pika and resin ended up what in the future dead they died i mean was it a great deliverance to be delivered from peak and resin yeah but talk about the even greater deliverance that christ gives us if you can be delivered from pika and resin or you can be delivered from the true and greater enemy death itself which victory do you want do you raise your hand and say well i just want to be delivered from my earthly enemies no you want to be delivered from death that holds you in lifelong slavery turn to first corinthians 15. look at verse 26. so romans corinthians first second second gospel after acts first Corinthians 15 verse 26 the last enemy to be destroyed is death in your Bible is death capitalized why is it capitalized because God wants you to view it as what an enemy he wants to personify it he wants you to see death as an enemy so much so he capitalizes it and then verse 54 when the perishable referring to our earthly bodies puts on the imperishable referring to the glorified bodies that we will receive and the mortal puts on immortality or when we which is to say when we receive eternal life then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory we experience victory over our enemy death oh death where is your victory in other words death no longer has victory over us. oh death where is your sting in other words death no longer hurts us the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. And then here's where we obtain this victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so think about it like this Ahaz faced resin and pica. We face death. In Ahaz's day, the birth of the child Emmanuel served as a sign of the victory that God would provide over the enemies they faced. But in our day, the birth of Jesus himself, which we can look back on, the true and greater Emmanuel serves as a sign of the victory God provides over the true and greater enemy we face which is death itself and so think about this the child born in Isaiah's day picturing that deliverance God provided from those evil Kings but how great was it insignificant compared to what Christ has done all of those people that died in any amount in their unbelief went to hell They weren't even delivered from eternity of torment even if they were extended another couple decades of life the deliverance that the true and greater Emmanuel provides that that sign of his birth to us is eternal deliverance from hell from the punishment that our sins deserve but here's the thing Jesus only provides this deliverance for those people who have done what unlike Ahaz believed Jesus has only provided this deliverance for those people who have repented of their sins and believed in him put their faith in him and if that's the case then Jesus serves as a sign to you Christ's birth serves as a sign to you of your salvation if you have not done that if you have not repented and put your faith in Christ then do you know Jesus serves as a sign for you as well but he serves as a sign of your what condemnation Your judgment that you will die in your sins because you do not have victory over the enemies you face sin and death if you have any questions about anything i shared this morning if i could pray for you in any way if you have any thought about whether you have repented and put your faith in christ whether you have this victory over the enemy you face i would consider a privilege to be able to speak to you after service father we thank you so much for the sign of emmanuel the true and greater emmanuel god with us Born two thousand years ago, and what that communicates—the victory we have over sin, and that we no longer need be slaves because of the fear we have of death itself—we thank you that Christ was raised from the dead, and that His resurrection, His victory, is then over death, is then given imputed to us, and will be our victory over death itself. We thank you for that, Lord. I pray if there be anyone here this morning who hasn't repented and put their faith in the true and greater Emmanuel that they would do that today lord that they that jesus wouldn't just be a name to them but that he would be their savior and that they would recognize that he came was born so that in the future he could die for their sins and take the punishment that they deserve and we pray these things in his name amen